Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. Andy, we are back for year four of Yeah Na Pesaran. Dear God, Cam. And we're recording this. In 38 degree heat. It is a Tuesday. We could be at the cinema enjoying a cheap Tuesday for a mere $15, a ticket to the waters of Pandora for three hours out of the sun. But instead, we're back for another year of anti fascism on your wireless radio. And today we are joined by Evan Smith from Adelaide. Thanks for joining us, Evan. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Ev, could you tell us about this book that you've just published? Me, Jane Persian, and Vashti Jane Fox. We've just published a edited volume with Routledge called Histories of Fascism and Anti-Fascism in Australia, and it is a survey of the far right and its opponents in Australia since the 1920s, coming out of a symposium that we did in Adelaide back in 2019. Evan, do you think it's a good idea for fascism and anti-fascism to be included in the one volume? They're normally not the best of friends. So can you explain why you decided to explore both subjects in the one volume? Yeah, no, that's a good point that usually there's a lot of studies that look at the far right or fascism and then anti-fascism as separate entities. And there's been a few books out lately about the far right in Australia, the contemporary far right. And we thought that you can't talk about fascism and the far right without talking about its opponents, particularly highlighting the grassroots opposition that has always been there in history of people on the streets opposing fascism and not relying on the police, the government and the state to to oppose fascism for them. One of the chapters in the book is about a chap called Ferenc Molnar. Feel free to correct me on the pronunciation. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what the go was with him? The, the book runs from the 1920s to the 2010s, but the one of the chapters is by me and Jane, and it's on Frank Molnar. The pronunciation is lost with me too. He was a Hungarian who came out to Australia in the, in the 50s and then became involved in the National Socialist Party of Australia in the mid to late 1960s. He went on television and talked about being a fascist in Second World War and made all these grandiose claims about his role during the war. And then he came to Australia and he worked in Canberra and he joined this little ragtag mob, which, which was the National Socialist Party. He's a he's a minor figure, but we 
but me and Jane, we talked about him because he is one of the examples where there's a crossover between the Anglo-Australian neo-Nazism in Australia in the post-war period and the extreme right that existed within the diaspora communities, particularly from Eastern Europe. So after the war, there's a lot of Eastern Europeans and Central Europeans that come, come out to Australia. And within these communities, there's a diverse range of politics, but there is a significant anti-communist, anti-Semitic, far-right element within within the Ukrainian community, within the Croatian, Serbian, the Hungarian, you know, within the German communities which come out to Australia. But they organise in their own diaspora groups. And Molnar is one of the people that provides a link between the diaspora right and the Anglo-neo-Nazi right in the 1960s. It's really interesting in the way in which he is Janus-faced in, in looking to both groups of, of the far right that exist at the time. I, th- I thought it was interesting reading the chapter on him because I guess you could say he didn't really leave a mark. He, he wasn't successful. And so I was wondering, mm-hmm. what, what's the value in you know documenting the histories of these people who didn't really achieve anything? <laughs> well, I, th- I think that... that- it's not about that, yeah, with some kind of history is why we're talking about it. But I think that it is an interesting of also what didn't happen is that there was the potential with Molnar for this increased interaction between the English-speaking neo-Nazi right and the diaspora right. And you see that in the 1970s, early 1970s, as we put in the chapter, Molnar is one of a few people. There's a Hungarian journal Perseverance, which publishes neo-Nazi stuff as well. And there's these, these flirtations between Croatian right and, 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 the, and some of the neo-Nazis. And what it is is that it points to that there could have been a moment where this grew into something more substantial, but it didn't. And that the the history when looking at these the fringes is is not so much what did they what did they achieve or not achieve, but what the possibility was that they could have achieved under slightly different circumstances. I was also struck reading about Molnar. You have this amazing resource as a historian in that. You know, there were people from ASIO and the like who were mm. documenting quite a bit of this very thoroughly. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit as a historian, what are some of the advantages, but also the disadvantages of relying on declassified records? Yeah. And this is something which a lot of historians are discussing now as these more of these kind of files are being released. So the, the one thing is the ASIO files in the UK, something like the undercover policing inquiry records, you know, the declassification, there's been massive declassification of FBI and CIA records. And they're, they're really interesting for showing, revealing how the state operates and how the, the state monitors those, the people who are seen as a threat and organisation as a threat. So particularly the far left and the far right and you see that the, the if you compare ACO's monitoring of say the communist party or you know the peace movement you know that compared to the attention placed on the far right in australia is that there's a massive amount more of attention and resources dedicated to monitoring the far left than there is to the far right and that's just not just a numerical thing because the far left is bigger than the far right it's just also the the preoccupations but when we're working on these semi-clandestine groups, that they that that we can find information you wouldn't be able to find anywhere else on how these groups operated through the police files, and we you know that 
because the far right is so secretive, it's the these present windows of of how of how these groups operated. But we're not seeing, you know, we're seeing that through the prism of ASIO surveilling the far right. You know, it's not always a reliable source. And there is also when we thinking on a more broad scale, the ethics of how can we ethically use information that was produced by surveillance on by the state. You know, it's maybe not so much an ethical issue when you're looking at the far right, but when historians working on ASIO files on the left is, you know, that can tell us a lot about how the state operates. But what, uh, but can we ethically rely on the, on how good these actual records are to say, give us an insight into those who were surveilled? I also I noted there was a, a mention of the hard right of the Liberal Party in that chapter where they were described as the war criminal right. Could you tell us about how they achieved that name and how might they compare to the war criminal right of today's Liberal Party? <laughs> <laughs> so that's Jane's work. Amongst that diaspora community, which come particularly from Central and Eastern Europe after the war, there's a lot of accusations that there was not a, the, the in-depth screening of migrants coming to the country in that 50, 40s and 50s period. And a lot of people who were potential collaborators with the Nazis and their allies during the Second World War had been allowed into Australia. And Jane has been doing this research on the far right in the in diaspora communities in Australia, and that several people who were who were later accused of being collaborators of being war of war criminals occupied positions within the Liberal Party in in, in that period in the in the sixties and seventies and became significant players, particularly I think in, in in the eastern states, particularly in New South Wales, that this these people who allegedly were were you know collaborators in the in the second world war and potential war criminals ended up yeah in these kind of backroom positions of power as power brokers in the liberal party in in the 60s and 70s and yeah and and jane has been tracing how that tapping into the diaspora community also then lent to the 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 far right influence and the the blurring of the boundary between the hard right, the liberals, and the extra parliamentary far right. Evan, not all fascists are uh, clandestine. Mm-hmm. And I thought about there was a, a recent disturbance at a soccer match in Sydney, which seemed to reveal the existence of pro fascist, pro Nazi sympathies among a segment of the one of the clubs and its support base. What do you think it is that the boys who are animated by this history remember that others forget? Hmm, that's a very good question. I think that it's particularly football fans and the far right. It is a lot of it. A lot of it is about this group mentality. Particularly, soccer fans in Australia might be tied to that diaspora politics and the nationalism, the and, and anti-communism, and they the the way that the diaspora communities, particularly you know the anti-communists and like hard nationalists of those diaspora communities have latched on to symbols of Nazism and of the Nazi allies like the Ustasha in Croatia and and others and, and and these are symbols which have then been reprocessed over the years through the different generations of the diaspora, diaspora community and, you know there is an argument that could be made that these 
symbols are used with not a distinct n- or remembering of 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 you know Nazi atrocities and the atrocities of the Second World War, but have been repurposed as nationalist symbols in in the in current day and have then been trying to repurposed as like a, a symbol of national identity against the you know the, the Anglo mainstream. But, but you know the the way that's used by you know particularly in in football crowds like or soccer crowds is that calls like like it's it's a shock value that you know the, the thing about being rebellious and being you know different you know where the the you know the, the ultras of the football clubs you know are seen as the most extreme and that and that these these symbols still have the desire the the desire and the design to shock. When I think about symbols that are designed to shock in the rebellion of youth, I often think of Dominic Perrottet, who has been in the news over the past yeah. week in relation to, obviously, the story about him attending his 21st birthday party mm. dressed in a Nazi uniform. Mm. I guess, from a, from a historical perspective, like, I don't know, <laughs> better journalists than us have probably asked you questions about this. But how did they frame their questions? Well, I haven't really had that many journalists ask me about. I've had a few, and they've, you say, you know, they've asked, like, you know, is this a divorce between, you know, the memory of the Second World War and and actually realising, you know, the gravity of what happened during the Second World War and under the Nazis? And I think that partly it is, yeah, it's, that there's not the immediacy of of the Second World War now, and you know, in two in the two thousands, and then also I think there is part of that, you know, that desire by certain people to shock. I mentioned to to journalists that you know, in the nineteen seventies, like punk, some punks and people used swastikas and other and other kind of Nazi symbolism as, as to shock, to be rebellious, to be contrarian, and I think that is something that is still happen that's on you know you might say that that youth on the kind of the fringes of the mainstream right have often delved into this kind of into this kind of thing of of being as as gross and contrarian as possible that you know other examples you know being pro apartheid in the 1980s you know the and and that and that kind of thing and you know being you know making kind of racist, sexist, homophobic things, which, you know, that there'd be stories about particularly young liberals indulging this kind of behaviour, you know, for, 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 for decades. I think one of the points that was made really well on Twitter during the week is that what's, the, the you know, the thing about Perrottet is that he, you know, he goes, oh, I was 21 and I was youthful, I didn't know better. But the thing is that at the same time, the age of criminal responsibility in New South Wales, which his government has enforced, is 10. And I think that's more of the point of not so much what Perrottet did 20 years ago, but what he's doing now and how his useful indiscretions in, you know, in inverted commas, have not led him to reflect on the, uh, the, the right-wing policies that he has pursued in government. It might be the temperature, but perhaps my tactic of just asking what have what good journalists asked, uh, you might be one I'll employ with future guests. That worked out well. <laughs> I, I thought it was really weird with the whole Perite thing. So, like, the Labor Party, have they don't want to run on this as a, an election issue. You know, what someone wore at a birthday party mm. 20 years ago. But it's actually been coming from, you know, the hard right of the Liberal Party is where yeah. this attack has come from. There's this weird topsy-turvy thing going on. 
Yeah, well, you know, the the thing is that maybe it's who knows what will happen if you start going down the path of what did people do who are in positions of how what they did in their youth. Do, do you think this would be a particular problem for young liberals? Well, I think that young liberals, it's of that there's been, you know, stories about the young liberals being that kind of crass and, and you know, and being racist, sexist and homophobic, you know, before. I think, you know, that there's been several stories in the media of that over time. And I think that a lot of people go, oh, well, it's, yeah, it's, what do you expect from the young liberals? But I think it's, maybe it's just that both sides and sections of the media as well don't want to open a can of worms. And I think, in a way, concentrating on the, the, the right-wing policies that Paratay pursues nowadays is more important in, yeah, in the grand scheme of things. In connection to the Liberal Party, and I guess more broadly across the 20th century, fascism in the far right has been identified either with you know, elites or the establishment, but there's mm. also been, a, I guess, a proletarian element. How do you think class plays out? In terms of the you know fascism and the far right in Australia, is this a, a working class movement or is it a you know a, a bourgeois phenomenon? Okay, yes. Well, so the far right in Australia have wanted to emphasise their working class credentials, but when you look at these movements over time, that they are really the you know the classic the petty bourgeoisie that they are they're usually like middle class, you know that the urban people uh, and 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 kind of, and some of the wealthy farmers uh, agricultural going back to the new guard in the 1930s is that there is some working class element but i think most of the studies have looked at it saying that yeah that it's 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 quite a middle class thing that you know i, I think you if you looked at the kind of the the people who make up something like the australian league of rights or or you know, or that those kind of parties, uh, one nation. I think it would be quite you know, lower middle class. You might say that there is a more proletarian in the commas working class element to so groups. Some of the groups like uh, the National Front Australia in the seventies and eighties, or National Action in the eighties and nineties. But the, I think that you know the the the, the the class composition actually is is, is quite difficult. We we found some files in Asia files on the National Front of Australia that give us an indication of who was joining the party in the late nineteen seventies, and it's like there's not that much material you can find about who actually was joining these parties. And we found this from looking at membership lists and so forth. As we've worked out that actually there was there was a lot of younger people, people who are at school, people at university, and then there was a whole lot, bunch of other members who were older, so over forty, who had like white collar jobs or retired and so forth. Like that. And, and and so there was the National Front, and this example of Australian fascism was composed of these two competing elements. You know, it was it was actually pretty much all the organisation was done. Like the leading figures of the National Front of Australia were university students and younger people, but the bulk of the of the, the due paying membership seems to be people over forty in middle class jobs. Did you get a sense of why that was? That's something that we were that me and some other people are still exploring. I think it's kind of that fascism appeals to 
the petty bourgeoisie traditionally, anxi- economic anxieties, but also anxieties about status and about racial anxieties as well and stuff like that. But then, but the people who get out on the streets are the younger people. Now, a lot of fascist groups, you know, tended to recruit young people, young employed, young unemployed people, school students. They usually don't make much headways into university students. And I think that's one of the things that National Front and National Action did when they were first getting on the scene in the in the late 70s and early 80s is that a lot of those people who started organising these groups had come out of the university system and they and had started using the university campus as a recruiting ground, trying to oppose the, the, the far left on campus. Speaking of the New Guard, <laughs> in Andrew Moore's essay, he references the fact that more recently, just in the last few years, the name the name the New Guard was reinvoked by contemporary fascists to as an umbrella term to help describe their online organising. I'm wondering, what do you think? How do fascists make use of this history? Is it something that uh, contemporary fascists look to for inspiration to model themselves upon? I'm not really. I'm not. I'm not too sure because some sometimes yes that they look to the history of fascist organising in Australia, say things like the New Guard, as a time when the far right was major. It was, was uh, you know, a major threat. Like there were, the New Guard had fifty thousand people in nineteen thirty one, thirty two. But the way that the far right, I think, uses history, particularly in Australia, is much more to appeal to the settler colonial white Australia more general, and they try to portray themselves as Australia has deviated since the nineteen sixties of where it used to be, and that only these radical nationalists in you know, in quotation marks, can bring Australia back to its heritage. So, you know, there's a real valorization of things like ANZACs, of the White Australia policy, like Federation of, the, you know, the Bush, Larrikin, Eureka Stockade. So the far right, the contemporary far right, or particularly since the 70s, has not really gone much on about Eric Campbell and DeGroote and the New Guard as much as they want to plug into those symbols of Australian mainstream nationalism and settler colonialism. Things like the Anzacs next Thursday, January 26th. Yep. There are all sorts of symbols that are employed within these groups and by these movements, but that are actually quite popular. So what do you think that is distinctive about the fascist contribution or the fascist uses of that history? Or does it does it actually mirror the more mainstream Right. Yeah, I think that that kind of is a way of entry points that the far right, how the far right try and make themselves more acceptable is tapping into these more mainstream concerns, you know, that they'll be the ones agitating about preserving January 26th as a day of celebration and stuff like that. And it's a way of trying to shift the Overton window to the right is by using Anzac nationalism and January 26 and those kind of things and saying, you know, why can't we celebrate those things? And that allows then the discussion to move rightwards. They've banned Christmas. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You know, it's a a, a mobilising thing and it's the the blurring of the boundaries, you know, that, that people like Aurelian Mondon and Aaron Winter... You know, or you know, many people have talked about this blurring 
of between mainstream right and the far right and using these kind of grievances, this victimology. Kurt Sengel in our book talks about Pauline Hanson and the politics of victimhood, how the far right play up these tropes in which they're victims of multiculturalism or you know minorities oppressing the majority. And that's a way of yeah making their their rhetoric get a wider audience. Evan, what can the anti-fascists of today learn from past organising in Australia? Or is it the case that you're fine to ignore the lessons of history? It's just a one and done. <laughs> so, you know, like, we, we shouldn't say that history repeats itself, you know, and, you know, and the, the make a historian, like, roll their eyes or saying, well, if you don't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat it, you know. Not saying that, but the way, but we need to understand, but I think it's kind of good to know that there's always been people on the ground, in the streets, in the communities, in the workplace, in university campuses, opposing fascism, and people haven't left it up to the police or the, the, or the security services or the government to ban things or to arrest people, or, or, you know, or that, it, or that we've always just ignored it because it's been so fringe. You know, from the 1920s onwards, anti-fascists have mobilised in Australia against the, 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 uh, against the fascist threat. And I think that for anti-fascists today is to know that there's a long history of, of, of grassroots organising that can serve as a kind of inspiration for, you know, that, you know, we don't need to leave it up to the police. We don't need to leave it up to the, a royal commission. We don't need to leave it up to ASIO, that we can do our own thing to challenge the far right and the kind of the racism and settler colonialism in society which generate it. Well, Evan, I think that's a good spot to leave it. Thanks very much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you're at Evan Smith Hist. Yep. And the book is Histories of Fascism and Anti-Fascism in Australia, out through Routledge. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, Andy, that is our show. We will be back next week and, yeah, hopefully a little less manically hot. <laughs> but who knows? Be hot on the streets, Cam. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to keep up this energy throughout the year, but I'm sure that we'll be speaking to many more contributors to this book throughout the year. So, look, something to look forward to in 2023. See you later. See ya. Evan, can I ask a bonus question that I'll put on the sure. podcast? Yeah. I was just going to ask, you've, you've also been doing some research into uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and moral yeah. panics. Uh, yes. I was wondering how that was going. Yeah, well, yeah, so Tribune, the British uh, left-wing magazine, they published an article last year on how panics about street violence and football hooliganism and about screen violence and about video Nazis kind of all combined in, in 1990 for um, when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out in Britain is that there was a concern that children would imitate uh, the turtles and like kind of like um, become ninjas and stuff like that. So the BBC, when they showed the cartoon, it was called the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Now, <laughs> outside of the UK, people like are like, that sounds like insane. That sounds really dumb. And then, like, it's people of a certain age go, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's That was pretty dumb and insane. And, yeah, like, it, it, you know, it's quite amusing. Um, and it's been told before, but I think that what uh, uh, that my article showed is it kind of tapped into kind of these kind of other moral panics which are happening 
across the Thatcherite period, like uh, football hooliganism, a kind of like youth violence and um, you know youth on the streets, and also like kind of the, the moral panic about video nasties and so forth like that. And it's her, it's the part of a new project that I've been working on on the history of moral panics in Britain, and I'm I'm hoping to develop that into a book um, in the next couple of years, looking at various moral panics in, in the Thatcher period and how um, they kind of overlap with each other and kind of sometimes have really kind of weird consequences like the hero turtles, but then also they end up in things like the harsher policing of uh, ethnic minorities or kind of the, you know, the crackdown on ravers that we see in the early nineties and stuff like that. I mean, you don't want your football hooligans having the power of a ninja. So like <laughs> they, they had a point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, but you know, but that's the, well, the thing is that, you know, there was a, much a concern about, um, football hooliganism but what it leads to then um to you know to make a serious point is then leads to uh kind of treating every football fan attending games as a potential hooligan and which is where we come to things like hillsborough in 1989 when like people are crowded into an area um uh, which collapses and many people die but you know that that, yeah, but it's all happening at the same time is that that happens just before the hero turtles are coming along. It's the same time as they're policing braves. You know, that, that they're all, these things are all intertwined. Well, something to look forward to. Andy, you had uh, maybe one question? I, I've got about five or six. Well, you know, I might just ask one or one. I'd, uh, yeah. Just a, a bit of personal history, Andy. We did manage to get like three interviews on the sewer show with Evan out of his last book, so I think we'll be able to. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to come year. back. I'm happy to come back. All right. Well, in that case, I guess uh, what I'll ask is, what do you think is missing from the volume? That yep. is, what subjects do you think are worthy of closer attention? Yeah. So the you know with the edited volume, it's always up to the uh, contributors and. Uh, what um you know that we it's not a kind of full history some more stuff on kind of like german organizing in the 1930s so like kind of we so there's a lot known about the italian fascists in australia but i think also kind of the german organizing some more stuff on kind of like people like inky stevenson and the Australia First movement, uh, Inky Stevenson was uh, interned during the Second World War. You know, so some stuff on that is missing from the volume. Stuff on some more stuff on the on the Nazi Party, and particularly the long career of uh, Jim Salium, who you know who began his career in the uh, National Socialist Party of Australia in the early seventies, and then has gone through kind of several groups now to I think in the Australia First Party in uh the 21st century and so something more on on him and and also i think that the australia new zealand connections that that the original symposium that we did had and had people contributing talking about uh new zealand and then also the links between australia and new zealand and there is a book being produced by two of the people who came uh, who spoke in Adelaide back in 2019, and there's a book coming out with Otago, University of Otago Press, about the radical right in New Zealand. And I think that's very good as a standalone kind of volume. 
uh, but I think there, there's kind of this, there's a chance in the future for people to look at that trans-Tasman connections of the far rights in both countries. And hopefully we'll, we'll be organising something with the people who produce that New Zealand volume sometime this year to do an online event to talk about both of our books. Excellent. Well, let's leave it there for the podcast. Uh, thanks very much for coming on, Evan. Thank you.
Join us at midday on Friday, the 20th of January, for the Tanaminawai and Morbohina commemoration at the corner of Franklin Street and Victoria Street in Melbourne at the Tanaminawai and Morbohina Monument. It's a two hour ceremony, begins at midday. The first hour is broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. We have a bevy of interesting guest speakers. At 1pm, we will walk silently to what we believe is their burial site in the Queen Victoria markets. I encourage you to bring your children and friends to commemorate the hanging of Tanaminuae and Melbourne for actively resisting the colonisation process. See you there. This summer, tune into 3CR's Disability Day broadcast, Rest is Survival. 12 hours of programs by people with disabilities. Conversations about rest as a necessity for survival, the ways disabled people are habitually denied both rest and income, reflections on disabled rest and joy, disabled Indigenous anti-capitalist features, and much more. All the audio is available to listen back at your leisure at 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022 or find the podcast by searching 3CR's Radical Radio on your favourite podcast app.